this morning. Good morning and welcome and thank you for joining us as we uh, gather together with our desire to worship Jesus above all things this morning. Thank you for being here. However you got here, um, we thank you and we appreciate you being here. Now as you just heard, the First Lady of Mission Church uh, read, we are closing in on the end of our journey through Matthew. Uh, we are now to the culmination of this story. This is, this is the climax. This is where the music would start rising up and we would, it would be very dramatic. If you were reading this story from Matthew 1 till the end for the very first time, you would be on the edge of your seat right now. You would be thinking to yourself, how is the hero of this story going to get out of this mess? How is he going to not die in this moment? It looks grim, but how is he going to get out of this? We, we're so inoculated with Jack Bauer and James Bond and pulling off these impossible feats and they get out of these impossible situations that we, we would be reading this if it was for the first time thinking something's about to happen and it's going to be really cool. But that's not how this story ends. See, this is the flip side of preaching a great passage but a familiar passage. I would venture to say every person in this room knows how this story ends. I would venture to say even if you are an atheist in this room, by the simple fact that you are in America, you know how this story ends. Whether you believe it or not may be beside the point, but you know what these words are about to say. You know he doesn't get out of this mess. And what I want us to do this morning, I want to challenge us this morning, is not to allow it to be familiar. I didn't tell Todd to say that in his introduction. I didn't tell Laura to pray that this morning. And yet, I think the Spirit led all of that to come together to remind us that we do not want to allow this to be a familiar story. Ho, hum, yeah, Jesus died. What's next? So I want us all to, to, to concentrate. I want you to do your very best to pretend you have never heard this story before today. That you are hearing and seeing this happen for the first time. Or imagine you're one of the disciples who, even though Jesus has told them over and over again what's going to happen, they're still confused and for some reason can't figure it out. And they're standing there wondering, what, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to this Jesus? So I'm going to ask you, we always want your undivided attention. I'm specifically going to verbally ask you for your undivided attention today. Put the phones away. Take notes, yes, that's fine. Try to stay awake, all of these things, right? Uh, groceries will be there when you leave. Restaurants will be open when we get out of here, I promise. But I just want us today to not be those people. There is a danger that if we allow this story to become too familiar, we will miss it. We will miss the point of what Jesus is really doing and what really, really took place on the cross. Sure, we know the answers. We could ace a test if we were given a multiple choice quiz over what this cross means. But I want to know, does it drive our lives? Does this drive my life? Do my gospel convictions drive my obedience, my day-to-day, -day, my hope, my trust? Do I put all of my trust in this cross? Do I put all of my hope in this cross? Or do I just say, yeah, Jesus died for me? So before we even get to Matthew... I want to read just a couple verses from Genesis, but, but while I'm doing that, if you would turn your Bibles, hold your place in Matthew, but turn to Leviticus chapter 16 and just kind of hold it there. As I'm reading these verses, this is just setting up the beginning. Genesis 2, 17, so 
God has created this, and he's talking to Adam and Eve here. He says, but of the, talking to Adam, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So we see here God from the beginning warning that sin is going to lead to death. Now speaking of a familiar story, what do Adam and Eve go ahead and do? There, there you go. Eat the fruit. They do the very thing God specifically told them not to do. The one and only thing at that point that God had commanded, don't do this. Okay? Fast forward through a familiar story. Genesis 3.21 says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them or, or covered them. So now we see that even though Adam and Eve did specifically the one thing God told them not to do, that God spared their life, their physical life. He did not kill them immediately. He does something else. He clothes them. He covers them. But he covers them with something specific. He covers them with the skins of animals. Now I don't know what type of animals these were. I don't know what skins he took, and it doesn't matter. What I do know is that those animals had not tasted death at this point because God made everything to live forever until the fruit was eaten. So none of these animals had died yet, and God takes their skins, which I don't want to be graphic here, means they died, and clothed Adam and Eve, covered them. And what we see here from the beginning is something that we cannot get away from, sin equals death every time there's no way around it there's no exceptions this is not an accident this is the way God designed it from the beginning he told them before they sinned you sin this is what happens they sinned sin equals death now I ask you to turn with me to Leviticus chapter 16 so flip over to that really quick we will begin reading in verse 7 and we're going to run through this pretty quickly but verse 7 says this, Leviticus 16, 7. Then he shall take, so he's talking about Aaron, the high priest at the time. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it that it may be sent away into the wilderness of Azazel. This is talking about, the heading above that should say the day of atonement. This is God ordained, God set this up so that he could pass over and be patient with sins as we are leading up to Jesus. So there are two goats. One gets real lucky and one gets real unlucky. And we all know what happens to the unlucky one. Skip to verse 15. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, that is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions and their sins. So this is the fate of the unlucky goat. Aaron must now kill this goat, harvest its blood from it. But why? What reason? Are we just killing animals? Is Peter just really mad? They probably are mad anyway, but why? It says, because of the uncleanness of Israel, because of their transgressions, because of their sins. Blood must be harvested. Blood must be used. Why? Because sin equals death. Something has to die to cover these sins. Now we get to the lucky goat, verse 20. 
And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat, and Aaron shall lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all of their iniquities on itself to a remote area. So we see in one case the sins of the people are placed on a goat and that goat is punished. That goat is killed. His blood is taken to cover for the sins and the transgressions and the uncleanness of Israel. He sprinkles it on the mercy seat asking God for mercy for their sins because what do they deserve? Death. Because they have sinned. But then they take the second goat and they're confessed over a goat and placed on the head of this goat, just like they did the first one. But this goat is removed from their presence and taken out to a remote area and just let go. And the question here, yeah, you kind of have to ask is why both? Why, why not just one or the other? Why not confess the sins over the one goat, kill it, sins punished, we're good? Or don't do that. Confess the sins over the live goat, send it out. Our sins are removed from us. They're far away. Out of sight, out of mind, right? And what we see here, so we know sin equals death, so take that. And what we see here is something that we already know. Punishment does nothing to restore a relationship. So sin must be punished, but that doesn't restore the relationship for the sinner and the sinned against. Okay, yesterday I learned a lesson. Pastors have children because they're automatic sermon illustration generators. This is why pastors have kids, okay? I mean, we love our kids, but this, let's be honest. So Nora, when she gets punished at home, and I know everyone in here is thinking, she doesn't get punished, she's perfect. She's got y'all fooled. She's depraved, and you need to pray for her, okay? She's pretty good most of the time, actually. But when I do have to punish her, in whatever way I punish her, in some way I always try to end the punishment with, give me a hug, give me a kiss, I love you, do you know daddy loves you, these kinds of things. Why? Because punishment for something, even when it is deserved, does nothing to restore that relationship. Just because Nora is punished justly does not mean we're all of a sudden on good terms, and that girl can hold a grudge. It's crazy. She's two and a half, don't know where she learned it. But she probably still has questions. Does daddy still love me? Does daddy still care for me? Is daddy still disappointed in me, and I want to make sure that she knows that she is still loved and that nothing has changed in our relationship. This is just what happens when these things happen. Sin must be punished. I'm not joking about this. I literally had to punish her while I was typing them. I got up from my computer because she was acting up and I had to go punish her. And I thought to myself as I was doing it, am I making too much of this just because I want a good sermon illustration tomorrow? I don't think that I was, but I'll probably talk to Eric about it and ask him what he thinks tomorrow. Um, but this is where, once again, we look at that million-dollar term from two weeks ago. So two weeks ago, before we took a, our break for Mark to come, Pastor Eric preached on the section just before this about Jesus being our substitute. And he used the term penal substitutionary atonement. It's a million-dollar word, right? We see both aspects of this in the Day of Atonement we just read in Leviticus. We see the penal substitute being killed, we see the atonement being confessed over the goat and removed from the presence of the Israelites. 
So a couple of weeks ago, he discussed this term, but he basically stuck to the penal substitution part. So today, we will discuss the atonement piece of that. You see, because just as with Nora, punishment does nothing to reconcile a relationship with God. Jesus standing in our place and taking our punishment, while absolutely necessary, would not have accomplished the whole job. It is not just that our sin is punished and taken and put on Jesus and he's punished for it. It must be also removed and replaced with something else. This is why there had to be two goats, but only one Jesus. See, the word atonement shows up in Scripture some 84 times. Every one of them is in the Old Testament. 49 of them are in Leviticus. And what we see is the word blood accompanies them almost every time. Even in chapter 16, the section we read, atonement is in there nine times. Blood is in there nine times. So what we see is after reading Genesis 2 and 3, we know why. Sin always equals death. Therefore, sin always equals blood. You see, Jesus is both goats cleansing us by his blood. And make no mistake, as much as the PC culture wants to remove the offensive word blood out of the equation, it is absolutely necessary that Jesus covers our sins with his blood. So, in the Old Testament, this had to be done every single year because it didn't last forever. We had to do it every year, plus a lot of in-between times. But the Day of Atonement was every year so that we could, or so Israel could beg for God's mercy, beg for God's patience, that this sacrifice would at least hold them over until the next year and they could do it again and beg for God's mercy and beg for God's patience. But we, even when we sin now, we think we have to re-sacrifice or rededicate our lives or re-up our devotion to Jesus. And what we see in Hebrews is that Jesus was our once-for-all sacrifice. So therefore, if believers, we live in a permanently atoned-for state. We are in perfect harmony with God through Christ. Why? Because he took our sins upon himself, just like the goat. He bore our punishment, just like the goat. But, as we see in 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of my favorite scriptures in all of the Bible, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, and the second part of that, so in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, our sin, while punished, has to be replaced with something else or we would just have to do this again and again and again. And I don't know if you've noticed, Jesus only had to be crucified once. We don't have to do this over and over and over. This conference of righteousness is what makes atonement possible. God crushed Jesus in our place so that we would remain just, but also so that we would not have to endure it ourselves. But then he did the second half and he conferred to us his very righteousness, his very holiness, his very perfection, so that when God looks at us, even when we sin, he sees Jesus. And we, we remain, even in our sin, even when we sin, we remain in perfect, unbroken relationship with God the Father. Now look at this penal substitution as the means, atonement as the ends. So how do we get to the atonement? We, sin has to be punished first. It has to be taken care of. 
But then there's the atonement piece, and that is where we stay. That is where we rest. That is where we live. If you look up the definition of atonement in the dictionary, it will say satisfaction, reparation, or expiation given for any injury or wrong. You see, notice there is no punitive language in that definition at all. There is no, and then we've got to hurt you, or then we've got to punish you in some way. The second half of this penal substitutionary atonement, the atonement piece, is not about justly punishing sin. That's already taken place. Or it's taking place at the same time, but you get, in our sermon series, it's already taking place. But sin, this is about reconciling us back to God, the one we have sinned against. You see, even in Webster's Dictionary, can't believe this is actually in there, the second definition given for atonement is reconciliation of man with God through the life, sufferings, and sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Notice nowhere in there does it say, and then you also have to pay. To get right with God, Jesus paid, but you, you have to pay too. You've got to pay this price. This is where we live. This is where we rest. This is where Jesus has placed us on the other side of punishment, on the other side of atonement, into the loving arms of our Father. So I know this is odd, and I admit that, and that's fine. But here's where I'm going to give you the application of today's text. Usually that's at the end, and I think a lot of people are like, yeah, give me the application. What do I do? This, they, we make it too much about us. I do this too when someone else is preaching. Like, okay, now what do I do? And I think sometimes, not always, but sometimes we can overemphasize the application and underemphasize the Jesus. And I don't want to do that today. So we're flipping it a little bit today, and I get we haven't even talked about Matthew 27 yet. So just bear, bear with me, okay? But the first application of this promised atonement, this permanent atonement that Jesus purchased on the cross is, is stop saying I was saved by grace, but now that I am in my sin or bound by my sin, that it's my responsibility to unlock my shackles. We talked about Barabbas a few weeks ago. He didn't unlock his own shackles. He wasn't freed because of something he did. He was just in the right place at the right time. And what I mean by this is we would never say that out loud, right? We would never say, yeah, I'm saved by grace, but I've got to work this thing out. I've got to figure this thing out on my own. We would never say that out loud, or I hope we wouldn't. And yet, we live in such a way that we've got to make something up to God. Or that God is somehow mad at us when we sin. Not that he doesn't care when we sin, because he does. But how is he going to punish you for something he's already punished Jesus for. So if you are a believer, stop living in this state of grace save me, but I've got to sanctify myself because that's not the gospel. You see, Jesus simply stood silently on that stage, that mockery of a trial, and what did he say by his silence? He didn't say it, but he said, yeah, give them Barabbas. I'll stay here. Give them Barabbas. But you know what else he said? Give them Justin. Give them Adam, give them Trace, give them Eric, give them Jennifer, give them everyone else. I will stand here in this place. It doesn't mean he was thinking about us, we'll get to that later. But he was thinking about salvations. He was thinking, yes, I have to do this. I have to stand here. He says, God, give me their sins. Give me their punishment. Pour it out on me, the undeserving but you see, that's the easy part. We, we like that idea, right? Yeah, give him my sins. Yeah. But then we hold on to our shame. We hold on to our pain, our regret, our despair. We live in that, right? We dwell in that. We stay 
beat down by the sins we've committed. When Jesus is saying, I want that too. I want your shame. Give it to me. I want your pain. Give it to me. I want your regret. That doesn't mean we, we don't hate it when we sin. That doesn't mean we don't try not to sin. But we don't live in the despair that that sin causes because it has been taken care of on the cross. You cannot sanctify yourself any more than you can save yourself. It is the same gospel that sanctifies and the same gospel that saves. And the worst news of all of that is you can't do it anyway. You can't save your marriage if it is crumbling around you by yourself. You can't keep your addictions at bay if you are trying to fight them by yourself. You can't raise your children right if you are trying to fight that battle by yourself. Parents, amen. You cannot do these things on your own. You will just fall into the statistical category of another failure who's tried to grit their teeth and just, oh, I got this. I, I just got to try harder this time. I know I did it again. Got to try harder this time. And God is saying, give me your God. I can't believe I did this again. Give it to me. Give it to me. Let me have it. I'm going to cover it with my blood. I'm going to free you the same way I freed Barabbas. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He says, our shame has ended for he has borne it. Our punishment is removed for he has endured it all. Double for all our sins has our Redeemer paid. Return unto thy rest, O my soul, and let peace take full possession of thy weeping heart. See, it's not just the punishment on our behalf. That's the first part of the equation. He also said, give them my righteousness. Give them my holiness. Give them my resistance to temptation. Give them my perfect life. Count it to their account. See, the application here is to live in the cross-purchased cross -purchased grace of the living God, courtesy of the cross of Jesus. Live in that, not just for your eternity. We love saying that. Man, when I die, I know where I'm going. What happens if you don't die? What are you going to do tomorrow? Because you need to live here tomorrow if you do wake up. That's more important. God will take care of the eternity part. He already, you already know that part is settled tomorrow something could go wrong what are you going to do something could go not according to plan what are you going to do it is live in this grace the gospel is sufficient for our salvation but not just that is sufficient for our daily living in the forgiveness and freedom from god's wrath but the flip side of that exact same coin so the second application of two is stop using grace as an excuse. Nobody is perfect is a correct statement. It is not a reason to go sin. Grace is a verdict, not a justification for disobedience. Grace is freedom, not a grantor of permission. This grace people speak so highly of in today's age, I'm afraid they're, it's missing from their life. They're, they're not actually covered in it. See, the Bible is clear that if there is no struggle with sin, there is no saving grace. The Bible is clear if there is no conviction for sin, there is no saving grace. If there is no desire for obedience, are you going to be perfect? No. Should you desire to be? Yes. If there is no desire for obedience, there is no saving grace. When you look at God and you say, you can have this part of my life, you can have all these parts of my life, 
but I'm keeping this one. And there's nothing you can do about it. I'm keeping it. I'm holding on to it. And your grace better cover it. I'm not so sure God's grace is going to cover that. If we spurn grace in this manner, then we are in grave danger of not being under the very grace we are trying to exploit. What belittlement. What, what a belittlement of what Jesus did on the cross if we see that as our ticket to fun and games with no eternal consequences. Thank you, Jesus, for dying the worst death that has ever been died. I'm sure glad God killed you so I can go get drunk and sleep around. I'm sure glad God killed you so I can be lazy today and neglect my wife and kids and not think anything of it. I'm sure glad God killed you for that. How stupid does that sound? And we're not saying it out loud. We would never say that out loud. But our lives look like it. My life looks like that sometimes. And how stupid does that sound when we do say it out loud, though? I'm glad Christ suffered so greatly so I can have free reign to do whatever I want. See, true atonement through faith is set in stone, and we must rest in that, but not using it as an excuse. See, we can know our eternity is secure. We can have assurance of that because we are sure of the one that has purchased it. But it is by His grace that we live in the freedom to obey. See, not the freedom to disobey. Because outside of God's grace, our wills are bound. Our wills outside of Christ are slaves to sin. They are like Barabbas. They are in chains. We cannot choose to do good. We are slaves to our addictions. We are slaves to the things we want. We are ultimately slaves to ourself. But in Christ, we are free to obey. We become slaves of God. We are free to obey. We are no longer enslaved to the passions of our flesh that we can't control anyway. And you see, all of this, all of what we just talked about, all of this application, both sides of the same coin, is utterly impossible without what we see here in Matthew 27. It's the longest intro of all time, I get it. What happened here in Matthew 27? See, we actually see throughout this story a couple bits of irony in the unfolding. And I don't mean rain on your wedding day and 10,000 spoons when all you need is a knife. Real irony. Like, those are just unfortunate events, okay? We need, this is real irony that is being carried out here. What we see here is Jesus being sentenced to die. That was two weeks ago. Pilate finally gives in, right? Finally, all right, kill him. But that was not nearly enough for these Roman soldiers, was it? As was the case for probably all, but at least most people that were sentenced to death this way, it was accompanied with a bunch of ridicule, a bunch of extra torture, a bunch of stuff that wasn't necessary for the actual crucifixion, but they just took great joy in it. It was fun for them. We see here that Jesus is mocked. He is beaten again. He is spit upon. And a crown of thorns is placed on his head. Now in the movies, and I think even in our own imagination, we imagine eight to ten guys gathered around Jesus taking cheap shots, right? Spitting on him mocking him, making fun of him. Just a handful of dudes. But Matthew says a whole battalion was brought to carry this out. That's 600 men. Now I'm not saying every 600 of those men punched Jesus or slapped Jesus or spit on Jesus. But I'll guarantee you it was a lot of them. 
And Jesus takes it. As was the Roman custom many times, they would dress up these death rowers in mocking costumes and make them perform a play of sorts, make them play out what they had been accused of. So in this case, in the first bit of irony here, they dress Jesus up like a king, the crown of thorns and a scarlet robe, to sarcastically bow down to worship him. And the irony is, is that this falsely accused king of the Jews was really the king of the universe. And when he comes back, they will be bowing down. There will be no sarcasm. And they won't have, be having fun. But then we see them strip him of his royal robes. Royal robes. They lead them to the place to be crucified. Now not one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, focus much detail on the crucifixion. They don't focus on the nails and the, how heavy the cross was and all of those things. They, they simply say in a couple words, and they crucified him, or and then he was crucified. For two reasons. One, the details of his crucifixion are not the crux of the matter. It's why he was crucified. But two... People back then would not have needed to hear these details. They were immune to this. They had seen it before. They knew what one looked like and sounded like. They would not have wanted or needed a vivid description of a man torn to literal shreds by a scourging that killed many just by that. They would not need a description of a man being nailed to a cross with six to nine inch railroad spikes into the most sensitive parts of his body where most of the nerves are located, where most of the pain will be sent to someone's brain. They would not need the description of hoisting a cross up into the air with no regard of how hard it's going to fall into the hole and jolt a man that they have just nailed to it and that that man would hang there for hours, if not days, waiting for the mercy of God to kill him. With his bodily fluids soaking the wood that has probably been soaked by other men's bodily fluids before him. And that that man would hang there struggling to breathe having to push with his feet on the very nail that they just nailed him to the cross with to push himself up to get his lungs in a position to take a short breath before falling back down from weakness and having to do that over and over again until finally you don't have any more strength to do that. And then you suffocate to death. Slowly, agonizingly painful. All the while, people are allowed to point at you and make fun of you and mock you. You're probably naked. You're probably leaking from any and all places you can leak from. All the bodily fluids are, are just covering you and yet you have to sit there and listen to people mock you and ridicule you. They wouldn't need that description. But I want all of you to try to imagine it. 
I want you to try to imagine this scene. I want you to try to imagine you are standing there in this crowd watching this take place. I want you to really try to imagine now. This is where I want you to really try to pretend that you have no idea how this is going to end. That this is the first time you're hearing this story. Imagine that man hanging on a tree that was meant for another man. Barabbas was probably supposed to be there. And Jesus set him free. Really try to picture it. I want you to imagine you've been watching this entire thing unfold. And I'm going to do something that's dangerous in preaching. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes while you imagine this. Use your imaginations and really try to picture this. Imagine you were watching there as Jesus was paraded through this obviously a mockery of a trial. Everyone knew how this was going to turn out. They're just going through the motions. Imagine you were there and you heard Pilate when he said, I find no guilt in this man. There is no reason to punish this man. Why have you brought him here? You're there as they bring out Barabbas, this terrible thug of a man who's probably killed people, who's definitely stolen things, who absolutely deserves to be there. They bring him out. And yet Jesus says nothing. Jesus is standing there silently. He could be pleading his case. He could be telling them, I don't deserve to be here. He remains silent as he listens to them gamble for his life. His life literally hangs in the balance as another man who deserves to die is paraded out there. And by his silence, he says, yes, you can have Barabbas. Because Jesus knew that God had to treat him like Barabbas so that he could treat Barabbas like Jesus. Then you watch as the guards go and take Barabbas' chains off. They unlock his feet. They unlock his hands. They say, you're free to go. Go back to society. Go back to what you were doing. Go back to your loved ones if you have any left. Try to picture it. Jesus stands there silently watching them unlock the shackles of a man who deserved his punishment. While he remains chained for a crime that he didn't commit. Then you hear Pilate say, what do I do with this Jesus? But before he can even finish his sentence, people start yelling, crucify him! Kill him! We don't want him around anymore. Kill him in the most inhumane way possible ever devised by men. Crucify, crucify, crucify so he does you follow the crowd and you watch this man Jesus as he is too weak from the beatings he has taken to carry his own cross so they ask another man to do it because doggone it they're going to carry this out you keep going they finally get to the place of death this Golgotha this place of the skull and you watch as they drive nails into this man's feet 
this man's hands. And they lift him up so that all can bear, see this man who is barely alive, bleeding, crying, sweating. As the cross comes to a, a thud, they hang a sign above him to further mock him that says, Jesus, King of the Jews, and people read it and laugh. You hear the crowds passing by, mocking him, taunting him, saying, save yourself, prove it. You say you, you're the king of the Jews, you, you say you're the son of God, save yourself. That's when you realize you've been yelling out those things. You've been agreeing with the crowd. You've been saying, yeah, prove it. You've been thinking the very thoughts you hear others voicing. You stand there watching this. You stand there hearing this. You stand there feeling this. You look to your left. You see Barabbas standing there who's stuck around to see what happens. You wonder what he's thinking. And yet Jesus remains silent through all of this. What you don't hear is Jesus saying anything. The trial, Barabbas being freed, marching through the streets, being hung on the cross, you don't hear him say a word. But now, you see him about to speak. You see him mustering up all the energy he's got left to say something. His beaten and broken body is, is barely alive enough to speak. And you wonder, try to imagine you have no idea, but you wonder what is he going to say? Is he going to rail against these men? Is he going to scream hate towards them and say, how dare you do this to me? Or is he going to plead and say, please let me down. I didn't do anything. I don't deserve this. Why are you doing this to me? What have I done? Imagine you have no idea what he's about to say. And then through tears and shortness of breath, you hear him finally speak. And he says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. They're unaware of what they are really doing. Do not hold their sins against them. Are you kidding me? Is that what he meant to say? If I'm standing there in the crowd and I hear Jesus say this, I'm thinking, there is no way that is what meant, he meant to come out of his mouth. And yet, this is atonement. This is Christ placing his righteousness on undeserving sinners, forgiving them through the punishment he is taking, but atoning for them and not counting their sins against them any longer. This is the gospel that even in Jesus' dying moments, he is asking God to make sure that what he came to do works, that what he came to do is effective, that the mission he came to carry out would take place, would come to fruition. But here's the kicker. What we have to get is Jesus was not thinking of you or thinking of those people when he was hanging there on the cross. He was thinking of God. And something we have to get while we celebrate the cross because it purchases our salvation, the cross was not primarily for us. It was not in order to change how we get to interact with God. 
It was for God. It was for how he can now interact with us. Pre-cross, the only choice was wrath. Pre-cross, the only choice was justice. The only choice was punishment. It's the only option he had to remain God. You see, the, everybody's heard of the prosperity gospel. There's a therapeutic gospel out there that basically states, you want to know how valuable you are? God went bankrupt to save you by sending Jesus to the cross. And that's not the gospel. The cross does not reveal how valuable we are. It reveals how wretched we are that God had to kill his son in order to redeem us. That there was no easier way because we are that bad. But now, we get to look upon, he gets to look upon us with love, with forgiveness, with mercy, with grace. Now he can adopt us into his family because we are redeemed and atoned for. We can call him father, we can call him friend, we can call him God. See, Isaiah 43, 25 says, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will remember them no more. The cross is for God, it is not for us. We simply get the prize that Jesus purchased on it. See, another bit of irony here is that they were yelling things like, we'll worship you if you show us, if you come on down, we'll worship you. The irony is that if he had done that, he would no longer have been worthy of worship. He would have been disobedient. He would have failed in his mission, so they would have been worshiping a false god at that point. They very well could have meant what they were saying. Probably not. But even if they were, if he had done that to prove to them, he would have saved himself, but he wouldn't have saved anybody else. Or he could remain there on the cross and not save himself and save countless others. Just like last time, we were reminded that we are Barabbas. We have to realize that we are those people in the crowd. And I don't mean John and his mom. I'm talking about the people that have turned away or were never turned to start with, that just wanted to see a good show and were yelling and mocking. Because this is what we do in our daily lives, because this story has become familiar as we choose lesser things over Christ. But even while Jesus is on the cross, that our sin put him on, he is asking for forgiveness for those who were there. He is forgiving a robber who's on the cross beside of him. And this plainly tells us that our screams of crucify, crucify can be turned to songs of holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty because Christ can redeem us and what a glorious day it will be if we get to heaven and we get to worship the true king with the man that drove the nail in his feet. Or the man that mockingly placed the crown of thorns on his head and spit in the face of Jesus. And if any part of you is sitting in that seat right now thinking, no way, there's no way that guy gets in. He killed Jesus. If that's true, heaven's going to be a real empty place. Because if the grace of Jesus can't cover that dude, then he can't cover us either. We have to get that the grace 
of Christ is that powerful. The grace of Christ is that expansive. The grace of Christ can cover any and all sins, including killing Jesus. Because it is our sin that put him there. And if we don't believe that those men could be forgiven, then we don't believe Romans 5, 8 when it says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If they can't make it through on faith in Jesus, then we can't either. But, oh, but if we believe that Christ's sacrifice was in our place so that we no longer have to fear God's wrath, if we believe that Christ's blood is sufficient in fully atoning for our sins, and if we believe that Jesus gave us, gifted us, His righteousness, His perfection, and His holiness, then we can rest in Him who purchased us. We can join now in worshiping the, the true King that didn't come down from the cross, but instead stayed there long enough to say the words, It is finished. Not it is finished, or it is started. Now you go finish it up. It's finished completely. You cannot improve upon it. You cannot diminish it. You can only stand in awe of the one who will ultimately usher you into a glorious kingdom, holy, righteous, and perfect. And he's going to look at you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. This is atonement. Cannot be overstated. And this is the gospel. And the greatest news of the gospel is that it is finished. Pray with me.